Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So the Lord went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was 
that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, give us your Holy Spirit. This morning we plead with you. I imagine that for at least a few of us here in the room this morning, the call and response that we do every week, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, may have been more challenging to say. Uh, Is this really the word of the Lord as it runs against so many sensibilities here this morning uh, for us as modern people? As we pray every week, Lord, this prayer of illumination, truly give us your Holy Spirit now to illumine this difficult passage for us. Here at Liberty Collingswood, as we're preaching through Genesis, that means we tackle the easy passages and the difficult ones, and so we're here this morning. Jesus, we cry out to you as the center of all of the Christian scriptures, including this one. Meet us with your grace and mercy this morning in our doubts and our fears that we would know the welcome that you give by grace alone through your crucifixion and resurrection. Do a good work now, we pray, in the reading and the preaching of your word. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So how did that feel? hearing the passage that I just read. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you a story about a blues musician named Lightnin' Hopkins. Who has heard of Lightnin' Hopkins? So he was born in the metropolis of Centerville, Texas, and not a metropolis at all. He had enjoyed the height of his popularity in the 1940s and 1950s, mostly popular in the South Southeast. But as the 1950s wore on for Lightning Hopkins, he declined in popularity, as happened to a lot of blues musicians of that period. Because what's going on in popular music during the 1950s? What bursts on the scene? Rock and roll. And then also, as the 50s gave way to the 60s, soul music became a thing as well. And so 50s into the 60s, Blues music was seen as old-fashioned music that's just not up with the times, and so Lightning Hopkins and a lot of other musicians declined in popularity. Until the 60s, when, and this was the case of at least a few other blues musicians of that period, Lightning Hopkins was discovered, quote-unquote, or rediscovered in the North, mostly by white music journalists in their 20s, writing for different magazines like Crawdad, and Rolling Stone was just getting started. And then also, blues musicians from the black rural south became popular with white college students in the Northeast and in Northern universities. Lightning Hopkins was part of this trend, and so he transitioned from playing juke joints, fish fries, dance halls in the south to cafes, coffee houses, and college campuses in the north in the 1960s. And then at one point, there was a record label that wanted to hire Lightning Hopkins to come and do a new record, so they brought him into the studio, and the idea was to pair Lightning Hopkins with a group of young white musicians. And the idea was, this wasn't the only album of this kind, where you have, this is sort of a cross-cultural, cross-generational coming together for the sake of music. But the only problem was, the, this recording session was not going well at all. Nothing was gelling. Everything was disjointed. It was the opposite of our music team this morning when everything's going great. It just wasn't, wasn't clicking. And after a while of starts and stops and half takes, 
The producer, who became more and more exasperated, came out of the producer's booth, went into the main recording room, and said, guys, what's the problem? This is not working. There was a long pause. And it seemed to the producer that there was a sheepish embarrassment in the room. And he said, time is money. We booked the studio by the hour. I need some guidance about how to have a salvageable recording session here. Finally, one of the young musicians spoke up and said, well, the problem is that Lightning's not playing the changes. Not playing the changes. And for you to know what that means, I need to explain blues music to you for just a second here. So, for blues music, 93.6% of the time, all blues music from the 1950s to 2023 will have the same basic structure to it. 12 bars, and the first four bars are the one chord, the root chord, whatever chord key you're playing in, the one is the root, and then it's two bars that goes up to the relative four chord, then two bars back to the one, then one bar to the five, then one bar to the four, and then two back to the one, and then you turn around. Since you asked, I'll sing it for you right now. It goes like this. One and two and three and four and 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 one and two and three and four one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four one and two and three and four bum blah bum then it goes again. But in the context of this recording session, Lightning Hot the young musician said, Lightning's not playing those those changes. He's not changing when you're supposed to change. And you see, Lightning Hopkins had always been part of that 6.6% of blues musicians that didn't play the changes in the standard way. He was always somebody who, most of the time, recorded and played live solo. And what Lightning loved to do, maybe you stay on those first four bars of the one a little bit longer to get the groove going. Maybe you hang in that middle part on the four chords just a little bit to build up more of a tension when you get the release of getting back to the one. Maybe you spend a little more time on the turnaround to get people spinning on the dance floor a little bit more before you reset. So the young musician was correct. Lightning was not playing the changes right. Another long pause in the studio. All eyes shifted to Lightning. Lightning, what do you have to say for yourself? And this is what Lightning Hopkins said. He spoke in a magnificent Texas drawl that I will not even attempt, but this is what he said, speaking of himself in the third person, obviously. He said, Lightning play the changes when Lightning want to play the changes. Shorter pause this time. The producer said, okay, Problem solved. And he looked at the younger musicians and said, follow Leutnant. And that's what they did. And the rest of the recording session went great. Now, how do you think those young musicians felt throughout that whole process? There were times when they may have been frustrated, when they may have been confused, but probably by the end of it, they were humbled. Hey, wait a second. We are in Lightning's band. We should get in line. They're humbled. 
And that sort of response has been my prayer this week as we engage what's been called a text of terror from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 19, the infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we process through this chapter, we may have some moments of frustration or confusion, but Lord, would you meet us by the end that we would engage with you in humility for all of the challenges that we're right about to talk about. I believe that there are some proper responses for us as people living under the word of God for this passage. And if we let this story play the changes for us, those changes in us will be profound, profound, but then also good and beautiful. So two parts from here, and then we'll look at three responses, I believe, properly called out by this passage. We'll look at some of the characters, some of the people in this story, and then we'll look at God. So let's look first at some of the people, and then also let's look at the living Lord as we find him in this passage. So the story so far, we are traveling along with these men slash angels that we first met a couple chapters ago in Genesis chapter 17. These angelic beings, sometimes they're called men, sometimes they're called angels. They represent Yahweh. They represent God. They first visit Abraham and Sarah and give a birth announcement. Hey, you're really old, but in about a year's time, Sarah, you are going to give birth to a son, Isaac. They laugh, and we'll pick up that story in subsequent chapters. But then these men move on, and they travel towards Sodom, which is where Lot, the nephew of Abraham, lives. And once they get to Sodom, they meet Lot. Lot says, hey, why don't you come on in with me? And we pick up the story in verse 4. We're going to look at the men of Sodom, then we're going to look at the daughters of Lot. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The question is, what's the sin? What's going on here with this that we may know them in verse 5? And most commentators, whether ancient or modern, will say, well, at one level or another, what's in view here is sexual assault. There are some people that would say, well, no, in this context, what if they're just asking for cappuccino and conversation? That's probably not what's happening here. Because in verse 8, the same word is used again in a clearer connection. Behold, Lot says, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. There's a lot for us to talk about there in a second, too. This is probably some kind of sexual assault. But then the larger upshot question, as you can imagine, well, what is in view here? And so traditionally, what is in view has been considered to be homosexuality. But now, more contemporary perspectives say, well, it's, it's really hospitality. And there is an infraction, a failure of hospitality here in Sodom, and, and, and that's the baseline infraction, that's the baseline sin. And as people go back and forth about this passage in contemporary times, the options, the viewpoints are predictably polarized, where the conservatives say what's in view here is sexuality, and the progressives will say what's in view here is hospitality. Well, Jim, what do you think? And I would say, let me say these two things. Number one, and I think this is actually, I did spend more time reading commentaries the past couple of weeks than usual because this is such a complex passage. I think if there's any majority reading, this is what I'm communicating to you and this is where I fall. Two things. One, 
it's a little bit of a false dichotomy to say it's either sexuality or hospitality that's in view here. There's nothing to indicate that it's all one or all the other. But at the same time, in my view, and this is majority commentators, what's probably in the foreground is hospitality and in the background, sexuality. The, the overarching context here is probably hospitality. So it's been a theme so far in this letter as the angelic men, the beings, go from Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, and then into Sodom and Lot. There's a contrast in hospitality. Commentators will say Abraham and Sarah are much better at showing hospitality to these angelic beings than Lot is here. And then hospitality is what's in view, as Lot says at the end of verse 8 as well. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. There's a hospitality ethic there. And it's all over Old Testament law as well. Remember the Sabbath day. It's in the Ten Commandments. To keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, the alien, the other, even people that are not of ethnic Israel. Show hospitality to them by granting them Sabbath. Or Deuteronomy. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Be generous with food and provision to the alien. Show hospitality to them. Or Numbers chapter 9. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rules, so he shall do. You, have, you will have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. Show hospitality. And just to be clear, I feel like it's difficult to read the scriptures in any way besides to conclude that sexual activity is circumscribed in the scriptures to a man-woman marriage. But as it comes to this passage, the interpretive upshot or question is, does Genesis 19 here prove that sexual ethic? I think that's going too far, so I would say no. But is it of a piece with it? I would say it is. Be that as it may. If hospitality is in the foreground here, the basic sin is what I quoted from a Jewish commentator last week. Sodom's sin is heinous moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of elementary human rights, and a cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others. Our first of three responses. How do we respond? How are we formed by this passage? We are called to show hospitality to the alien to the other. And it goes without saying that actually this is a declining value in our cultural moment. Wait a second. Show hospitality, be welcoming to everybody? But what about our enemies? And as individual people or people groups, isn't it the case that we have enemies that we sure don't want to show any grace or any hospitality whatsoever? For some of it, it's an, it's an ethnic group, it's a racial group, it's a national group, it's an ideological group, it's a political group. Hospitality here, yes. Hospitality here, no. And this is where followers of Jesus are actually called to be different in a cultural moment like this. Don't play favorites and don't play enemies. 
And the more different a person is to you, culturally or otherwise, the more hospitable you are called to be towards that person. So to be hospitable to the alien or the person that's other than you, practically speaking, that takes time, that takes effort, that takes resources, that takes sacrifices. And as you show hospitality to the alien or the other, you find that you're the one that has to adapt. It's not just about your schedule and your routines. They listen to different podcasts than you do, or they don't listen to podcasts. Different pop culture references, different cultural touch tones. So you have to adapt, you have to learn. And I don't think it's too strong to put it this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, and the people that you show hospitality to look and act a lot like you, you are not clearing the bar of what the Bible commands of you as it relates to showing hospitality. We are called, and would we be molded by this passage in this way? So we're looking at the men of Sodom. Also, let's look at the daughters of Lot, verses 6 to 8. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brother, do not act so wickedly, because I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. At first reading, and I'll say as well, at second, third, and readings on down the line, this counter-offer that Lot is making concerning his own daughters is unspeakably vile and evil. But the question, or the problem here, is, but wait a second. Lot's rescued at the end of the story. It seems like God approves. Lot makes this horrific offer Take my daughters instead, do know them, do to them as you please. And is God just fine with it? And says, okay, Lot, you're a good guy, you're on my team, I'm going to get you out of here. This is why biblical interpretation requires patience and care. And I think a closer reading shows that it's actually obvious that God is not approving of what Lot is doing here. Is Lot a good guy in this passage? Absolutely not. In fact, at no point in the Genesis story has Lot ever been a good guy. Way back in Genesis chapter 13, when Lot is, is a nephew of Abraham, they're brought into the promised land that God, you know, it's in the name, promised Abraham and his family, I'm going to bless your family. Lot says, hey, I don't want to stay here. This other land over here looks good. So Lot leaves the promised land, and things get so bad that he needs to be rescued by Abraham. But then by the time of Genesis 19, Lot is back there again. He's acting negatively. And in fact, the only time that Lot acts like Abraham so far in the story is when Abraham does something for the one time, in his case, negative. At the end of Genesis chapter 12, there's a famine in the promised land. Abraham goes down to Egypt, is worried about saving his own skin, offers his wife Sarah to Pharaoh and says, go ahead and take her. She's not my wife. She's my sister. And it's the same sin twice. Offering their vulnerable wives, daughters, to power to save one's own skin. And then after this passage, we'll see the coda for Lot next week as well. Negative, negative, negative. And even in this chapter, the story itself, Lot is consistently portrayed in the negative. He's not taken seriously by anybody. 
the townspeople in verse 9, stand back and they said, this fellow, Lot, came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with him worse, we will deal worse with you than with them. And also his own family doesn't take him seriously. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Oh, Lot, there you go again. And then also, Lot doesn't take the angelic being seriously when, to put it in real estate terms, they tell Lot, hey, Sodom is very soon going to be a collection of severely depreciating assets. You should probably get out. And he lingers. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, verse 15, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. And then also he negotiates away. I don't want to go to the hills. Can I just go to Zoar, that little place over there? So Lot, consistently including in this story, is a buffoon at best. Does God approve of what is being offered by Lot, namely his daughters? Well, no. As you look at the representatives of Yahweh, the representatives of God in this story themselves, the angels, they are absolutely all about protecting these vulnerable ones. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands, these are the angelic beings, brought Lot into the house and shut the door. No, you're, you're not going to get them. And they struck him blind in judgment, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the same entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. They're protecting. And it's the angels themselves that deliver the daughters. But he lingered. Lot's not doing anything. He's useless. So those angelic beings seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Another way that we can be molded. Be hospitable to the alien or the outsider or the other and show protection to the vulnerable. You see, the Bible is very aware of power dynamics, Old Testament and New Testament. Only the Bible flips them on its head and says, any and all power that you have must be leveraged to those at risk, must be leveraged towards the vulnerable. Be like the angels. Protect. But then we still see in this passage, okay, Lot might not be a good guy, but he's still saved. What do we do with that? That doesn't feel good to us. So let's look at the God of this passage as well. What's hard and what's hidden. And really, this story is sort of like running the table with all of the tension points as modern people, as we access the scriptures, there's so much in here. What's hard? God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment. And that's really difficult to take for modern sensibilities, but the scriptures are emphatic. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a natural event. Verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. At the beginning of verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley. And as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah carries forward throughout the scriptures, it becomes an object lesson, a warning, not just any warning, an eschatological, an end times warning that God will be the final judge. Jesus himself says 
In the Gospel of Luke, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. If you've been at Liberty Collingswood for a little while, I understand if you struggle with this. I hope you're not shocked by it, because in fact, we mention these realities about God every single Sunday. Whether it's occasionally in our words of pardon or the confession of sin where we speak of Jesus sparing us from God's righteous judgment and wrath. What do we say towards the end of communion? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. What do we say in the Apostles' Creed every week? Jesus descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And if you're struggling with Christian faith, or at least this aspect of it, if you're skeptical of spiritual realities, you might be inclined to say, that's just a fairy tale. And why does traditional historic Christianity get so obsessed about the end times and how the world will end? I would simply respond, everybody does that anyway. How many works of, of fiction, science fiction, storytelling, whether ancient or modern, deal with how the world is going to end. Have you seen that show about the zombie apocalypse? Oh, wait, there's 30, including The Last of Us right now on HBO, right? That's where our headspace is anyway. Why do we remove the right from God's headspace to be there and say, but we'll just handle this on our own. It's everywhere anyway. Andrew Del Bonco, a professor at Columbia University, New York, for a long time said this, we must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim back of the mind suspicion that we are adrift in an absurd world. And so I think as we see this story, our third response, we should be humble before God. Also for one more reason, what's hard and what's hidden. For all of the challenges and difficulties of this story, there is one masterful detail that is held to the very end of the tale, where the narrator lays one last card on the table. Why, at the end of the day, was Lot rescued? Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why did God rescue Lot? Because God remembered Abraham. And that remembrance in this context is in the word and concept world of covenant. God remembered his covenant promise to Abraham that he was going to bless Abraham's family, and that includes, because he's part of Abraham's family and a recipient of God's covenant promise, that includes God's or Abraham's vile, idiot nephew, Lot. And so it's God's gracious choice. God does not save Lot here because he deserves it. He had it coming as much as anybody else in that city, but he does it by grace. And we've talked here before on Sunday mornings that when we really think about grace a lot, on the surface, grace is awesome. Who doesn't love grace? But when you get to the nitty-gritty, it actually becomes more challenging. That's not fair. Lot is rescued here? That bozo? 
That's not fair. And if you really think about grace, it buzzes your pride tower. It pings your pride radar. Wait a second, if grace is really grace, and God, you give favor and and save people by grace? And grace alone? That means the bad guys get in. And grace comes back, God comes back and says, yeah, that's exactly right. But even Lot? Even you and me. Because that's what grace is. Verses I mentioned last week. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. That's not because of us, but it's by grace. And so we would respond and be humbled before God for these two reasons. And both are necessary. One, God has the right to retributive judgment. He does, because he's God. He has the right to retributive judgment. And one question that I think is you're wrestling with faith to think about is, is, is the universe moral or not? Is, it, is, is there a morality to the universe or not? And to the extent that you say, yeah, there, there's, there's, a moral, there's a moral universe baked in here. One of my favorite 20th century authors, Robert Stone, who was not a person of faith per se, couldn't escape the non-randomness of everything. He said, stories explain the nature of things. The laws of both language and art impose choices that are unavoidably moral. And if you're somebody who's struggling with Christian faith, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, with this idea of God, who's a God of judgment, it's possible, I'm not saying necessarily, that secularity has seeped into the tectonic plates underneath where you might think at the end of the day, the universe is just random, accident, going nowhere from nowhere. There's nothing personal about it at all. If that's our baseline foundational assumption, then a God who judges does not fit that at all. But interrogate your first principles in this way. And we should be humbled before God, both because he has the right to retributive judgment, but then also because he has the right to save by grace. And we should be humbled by both of those things. And I said both are necessary because if it's only the God that judges without the God that gives grace, that God is really, really harsh. In my sensibilities, at least. But if it's the flip side, God has the right to give grace, but we don't want anything about judgment, then to my sensibilities, again, that God becomes a pushover. But as we understand the whole picture and begin to be humbled, it makes sense how God tells Moses in Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, which is quoted by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And a statement like that sounds a lot to me like lightning plays the changes when lightning wants to play the changes. And as the musicians in the room were humbled, you see, they were not humbled because Lightning Hopkins drove them out of the recording studio. They were humbled because Lightning kept them in. We're called to be similarly humbled. So for a passage so challenging, there are yet ways to respond. First glance, text of terror. But being molded and responding to it, Be hospitable to the alien or the other. 
be protective towards the vulnerable and be humble before God. If we respond in these ways, we become servants of all as Jesus serves us with good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.